1: Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, presented by me, Jimmy McLaughlin, former Downing Street advisor on business, specializing in entrepreneurship and technology. During my time in government, I was involved in a number of meetings where we would try to create memorable lines which would sum up government policy. You can probably think of a few famous ones yourself. Tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime, long-term economic plan, Don't leave, take back control. There are also some less memorable ones, which I enjoy thinking about from time to time. Like Nick Clegg's alarm clock heroes. Anyone who woke up to an alarm clock and went to work should be classified as a hero. And in today's world, two of the most important phrases that you'll hear governments, politicians trot out over the coming years are leveling up and building back better. Neither of these are going to be achieved without a serious focus on the reskilling agenda, which was at the heart of the Queen's speech last week. But how you actually translate these catchphrases into success is a totally different matter. And that's why I'm delighted to be joined today by Elizabeth Tweedale, who is a thought leader in the space of how children learn new skills in areas such as coding, for example. She founded a company called Cypher Coders, which specializes in teaching kids from the age of six to code and is expanding into many other areas as well. As this podcast is all about skills of the future, it seemed important to look at what was happening at the very earliest stage of our skill development. If you listen to this podcast shortly after release, Elizabeth and Cypher Coders are crowdfunding on Cedars, so you might be interested in checking them out thank you to our partners for the second series of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. The Octopus Group who make this show possible. There are lots of companies who claim to be entrepreneurial and support entrepreneurs but Octopus really live and breathe it. So much so that if you are one of Octopus's 750 employees and you have your own startup idea, Octopus will give you the time off to go and start the business and keep your old job open for you. They call it their springboard program. If you want to hear more about it, it's worth checking out the third episode in this series with the founder, Chris Hulapp. He talks us through how Octopus began as a fund management company, but is now expanding into lots of other areas, such as Octopus Energy, and how healthcare is one of the big areas that can be disrupted. On to today's episode. Elizabeth, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Could you start by telling us your journey into the world of work? What was your work experience? What was your first job?
0: Yeah, sure. Thank you for having me, Jimmy. It's great to be here. So thinking about my first job, I'd say I was born an entrepreneur. I actually, my first job was at about the age of eight where I started my own friendship bracelet making business. So it wasn't me making the bracelets, but I would actually bring all the strings to school and taught my friends how to make the bracelets. They would make their own bracelet and then pay me for it. So it was always kind of this entrepreneurship way of thinking, but also teaching alongside as well. But I'd have to say my first paid job was actually working in a fabric shop because that friendship bracelet making business sort of progressed into fashion where I'd have them making their own skirts and dresses and things like that, had a little assembly line going. So the fabric shop actually was a good way for me to feed that other job because I got a discount working with all of the white haired ladies in the shop, I have to say. (laughs) But that was um, my first career, I guess, before going to university.
1: You've clearly always had that creativity mindset. Then, if they were your sort of first two experiences, and so what took you from that to founding a coding company for kids of the future?
0: <laughs> yeah, great question. Seems like a big jump, but actually, it sort of feels like all paths were leading to this, if you will. I went to a university, and my majors were computer science and art, and then I got my master's in architecture. And it was when I was working as an architect that I saw my contemporaries trying to upskill themselves and teach themselves how to code because if you were one of those architects that, knew how to use technology and coding to design buildings and things, you could work your way up the ranks, (laughs) so to speak, much more quickly. Seeing a lot of those kind of younger junior architects trying to learn a specific language, such as Python, for example, to solve a very specific architectural problem caused a lot of frustration for them because they didn't have that base fundamental understanding of computer science or how computing languages are built. And so this is when I thought, you know what, this is a really big problem that the future generations will all have to learn. So it doesn't matter if it was going to be somebody going into architecture or someone running their own tea company or working in ocean conservation anywhere in between would need to have this base understanding of computer science, technology and how to problem solve using that technology. So I started teaching kids how to code in 2013, which is around the same time time that computing became part of the UK national curriculum or the English curriculum and just kind of went from there. Cypher, I guess, came out of that with this need for a new way of teaching computer science, because previously it was always taught at a university level. So how do we actually bring it down to the level of, say, how a six-year-old learns how to code, or an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old, and what kind of concepts they can understand, and how they can apply technology in their lives, and how they should be learning this new skill. So Cypher was born from that with the basis of creative themes to get a broader range of children interested. So using things like architecture and coding or conservation and coding or art and coding
1: And that's it because coding is is so much there's more to kind of all these skills of the future than just coding but it it is those modern building blocks that you talk about in terms of architecture in terms of online design sometimes these things buildings are much easier to understand and so on but almost like the foundations of buildings is kind of the modern day coding for when people are wanting to construct things online
0: yeah, I mean, it's a very similar way of solving problems. And that's definitely how I approach this new computer science curriculum was similar way to that that you teach in architecture school which I saw, you know, you could have those very logical people in architecture schools, not too much creativity. And then you had the very creative artsy ones that you had to teach a bit of logic and rigor and, you know, building systems and structures as a structures teacher as well. And you can kind of teach both sides of the brain how to problem solve in that way in architectural education. So applying those same sort of learnings to computer science is a great way to pull in a broader range of kids to get them interested and also to help them understand this language.
1: And so what took you from doing that teaching in 2013 to in 2016, you know, five years ago, taking the leap and thinking, I'm going to do this full time? What was the story behind that?
0: Yeah, well, I had also previously co-founded an artificial intelligence company that I was working as the CTO of that called GoSpace, which deals with the spatial adjacencies of people in the workplace.
1: Sorry, what's spatial adjacency within the workplace?
0: (laughs) Good question. So if you think about where people go in, say, a large office space and where they actually sit, making sure that the right teams are together at the right time in the right place, which is a very important problem post-COVID when people are also only coming in on certain days. So that's (laughs) advantageous. It was sort of thinking about that problem even way back when flexible working was just starting to come into existence in big workplaces. that makes sense?
1: Yeah, that, that <laughs> totally makes sense. And so yeah. going from there and deciding that your passion that you speak of helping kids with the future of coding, partly because you were starting a family of your own, I presume?
0: Yep. So I'm a mom of three. So at that time, in 2013, my eldest son was about four turning five, I saw him learning this language with me, and also taking it up as part of the school curriculum. And so I knew it was something that all children would need to learn how to do and particularly getting more girls into STEM. But right from the onset with Cypher, it was really the core concept of these creative themes behind computer science and having a very inclusive environment. So not just creating a company just for girls, for example, but making sure that it was an environment that girls felt very welcomed into. And so at Cypher, 52% of our students are female, which is lovely. But, you know, the boys love it just as much as the girls. But I'm really happy to say that we've built something that we know reaches both genders as
1: well. I can assure you as the personal interest of mine coming from this is the father of a small girl, although it does not feel so small anymore. And I just think I was never able to get, you know, we're from the generation that sort of didn't really do computing at school because it was, I remember my teachers saying, we're not going to teach you computing because by the time you leave school, it'll be out of date, which is probably, you know, there was probably some truth in that, but it's just become so important for people to kind of have a baseline understanding of it because it's just so crucial
0: I think they said that 80 percent of future jobs will require that base knowledge of computer science and there was a recent BBC article as well that I'm sure you've probably seen that came out that stated that we're heading towards a digital skills shortage disaster so I mean it's frequently in the news and in the limelight that this is a crucial skill that we need to be upskilling our little
1: ones it's understanding the language of it, isn't it, right? And that's the key to so much of this because you can see how to use social media and you can see how like to use Excel, Word, all these things that have evolved over the years. Whereas actually understanding what goes beneath them, how they operate is so fundamentally crucial to understanding how we use it. For the future i mean where is your plan to kind of take cypher kids because there are so many opportunities there are things that are often talked about how we need more of this on the curriculum more of that challenge When i was sitting in number 10 would always be along the lines of for everything that somebody lobbies us to put on the curriculum we need to take something off and that is a real challenge and teachers will tell you how stretched and how busy they are and there's this whole debate about whether we're overworking children and so on and Whilst I don't want to get into all of that debate today, I would be really keen to hear from you about what you see the skills of the future for children learning to develop now are.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's a great point that you brought up about the curriculum. You know, you can add in something like computing, but to actually carve out time in the schedule is difficult. And that's where I think we have a real opportunity because technology and computing should be at the same level as you know, our math and literacy. And it doesn't have to be a one or the other kind of situation. And I think that's exactly what Cypher has been born to show, is that this cross-curricular use of time can be really beneficial within the curriculum. So having mass classes with computing, you can approach concepts in a different way, and you can tick off both boxes at the same time. So it doesn't have to be one or the other losing. I remember one of my first lessons, I was at an all-girls school in London, and one of the girls afterwards came up, she was just so exciting. I mean, we were doing this lesson where you had a rocket ship going to the moon. And you know, you had to program the rocket ship to take off and sort of turn a specific angle to fly towards the moon and then land on the moon. And she came up and she said, Oh, Miss Elizabeth, thank you so much. My teacher has been talking to me for weeks about coordinate systems and going down the hall and up the stairs. And I was like, Oh, no, that poor girl, if she has any sort of 3d brain, she would never get that. (laughs) And she was like, I never got it. But as soon as I saw the coordinate systems on this rocket ship and how I had to, you know, turn a specific angle and I could actually see it working, she's like, I get it, I totally get it. And she ended up being one of my best students, but that type of brain speaking about coordinate systems in a 3D world just is never going to work for her, right? So you can tick off a lot of boxes in both particularly STEM subjects and computing, but math, but also in English and literacy, you know, and storytelling and a lot of the curriculums that we work within within some of the London schools, we actually incorporate some English lessons and structuring sentences and things like that within a computing lesson where characters are actually having conversations and you have to get your, you know, all of your conversation bubbles accurately defined <laughs> in order to pass both the, the English side and the, the computing side. So that's where I think we have a real opportunity and not one or the other would have to.
1: So you're, you're dual testing then through some of the programmes?
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. And I think that's where Cypher brings a whole new kind of level of understanding of computing and by bringing in different themes, whether it's creative themes or these more structured curriculum themes as well.
1: And so talk us through the success you've had so far. How many people have you had through the camps? And what are your immediate expansion plans?
0: Well as you mentioned before we teach children between 6 and 12 now a year ago pre-covid we were doing that all in person so at holiday camps and after school clubs that sort of thing and then when covid hit we transitioned everything all of our courses online within 48 hours so that was quite exciting times and since then we've had over 2000 students on our live online courses so you can come to for example a week long course and the students will come for 90 minutes each day and they'll be in age groups or with their friends. So that's another advantage that they have with Cypher. It's not, you know, just that one to one learning that you could get with private tuition, but the kids really enjoy coming with their friends, which also facilitates that network effect, because then they recommend us to other friends. And we also had children from over 21 countries this past year due to that whole network effect in motion, as you will. So I think that where we are going now is an exciting times. As you mentioned previously, we're raising investment which is always exciting for the next stages of growth. But we'll be launching a subscription model because we do have such amazingly loyal customers that keep coming back. We wanted a way to be able to reward them for that. But it also opens up a broader opportunity to those that might not be able to afford a course straight out at the offset, but to be able to pay over time, you know, on a monthly subscription to be able to have access to this kind of content as well. So we're really excited about that.
1: And so much of the challenge for Monday parents is trying to work out where and what people should be doing because there's so many different kind of coding schools for older generations and so on. It's such a new sector that it can be so difficult to navigate when you know when you know nothing about it as well. And so it's great to hear that you have so much repeat customers on it. What is the plan for? You talked about the crowdfunding raise and you're raising other angel investment as well. After that, what are the jobs that you're going to be hiring for directly in your team to power that next phase of expansion?
0: Yeah, so we definitely have kind of our internal roles. And then we are constantly hiring teachers as well, which is always fun. But internally, we've just taken on board a CFO, which is really exciting a chief product officer as well. And we're still looking for a head of growth. So that person will be looking after our digital growth and our marketing in terms of customer acquisition, because I think that's the the strongest thing Cypher has going for us right now is that we've gotten to where we are with essentially zero sales team. <laughs> it's just a lot of word of mouth and an amazing product. So that will really accelerate our growth, having that head of growth. And then I guess on a you know regular basis, we hire teachers six times per year on kind of an ongoing schedule. And I love the energy that they really bring to our team because we get sort of two types of teachers, if you will. Get one is sort of the tech know-how people, so those computer science, more computer science background, oftentimes these are students, university students doing their master's in computing or something like that, and we can train them on skills around children. (laughs) Because I'm not sure if you met very many of us coders out there, but we're not always naturally children friendly. (laughs) So they end up getting so much enjoyment out of that. And then the other side is teachers that might have a bit of extra time in their in the holidays, they want to upskill or we get a lot of actors as well. And then we teach them the coding know how. So again, they really love it because they bring that energy and that knowledge around children to cipher. But then we can also teach them about the computing side as well. So that's another big hiring thing that's happening on an ongoing basis with us at Cypher.
1: And how long does it take to upskill a teacher in the ability to be able to do it then? So take that actor example, because there's lots of different examples of people at the moment who've had their work lives turned upside down over the last year with the pandemic and so on, that are now looking to take on It's not always a phrase I like, side hustle, but (laughs) looking for different kind of streams of things to be able to do. So how long does it take somebody to upskill in being a teacher and being able to teach a six-year-old coding?
0: Yeah, well, we have automated a lot of the pieces of the process so they can read a lot of the things. And then once you factor in all of our face-to-face time trials and testing practice sessions, that kind of thing, we do it all within a week. I think The strongest thing that we have going for us is that we get people with a really strong shared vision. We all understand and are super passionate about upskilling the next generation for the technological future and knowing how important coding is and technology is for that future. And so because we have so many people coming to us with that shared vision, it then makes it for us much more straightforward to convert them to learning how to teach coding. You know, A lot of them are taking a JavaScript class on the side just for fun kind of thing. And it's easier for them to start at age six, age seven, because that's block-based coding, or essentially you could imagine code inside of virtual Lego blocks that you can stack together. So you don't have to worry about all of the syntax. I missed a semicolon here. I put the wrong type of bracket there. It's an easier lead in. And then our more advanced, computationally advanced teachers will teach the older students. And then they can kind of, once they have more experience with Cypher, they can move between any of these age groups as well as they progress. Short answer is a week.
1: (laughs) I mean, I think it's incredible. And I can think of a lot of people who would be curious to do that and learn about it themselves partly to begin with as well.
0: Yeah, and I think like you mentioned, it is a great side hustle because they get so much out of it as well from the kids and their feedback that besides just the money, it's just great to have that impact on children's lives.
1: Yeah, totally. And also like wanting to understand it for their own kids as well, right? I think that's a huge thing as well. And I think the gamification side of it that you've talked about, and you you can look at the different examples that you have on the website in terms of murder, detective games, Olympics, nature this side of things. And that dual aspect of learning whilst doing this is so important because I think back to when I was at school, quite a lot of it was still, it was moving on from rote learning, but it wasn't always as stimulating as you might might want. <laughs> I
0: think
1: it'd be uh, yeah. fair to say.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: <laughs> and so to what the future looks like and where can you see in time expanding beyond this? Because It's not just children that need to upskill in this. I appreciate that's the serviceable, addressable market for the moment. But total addressable market could be huge for this, right, in terms of adults needing to learn it in entertaining ways. Is that something that's on the horizon potentially one day?
0: Definitely. I think thinking about learning computer science in this way isn't necessarily a new thing, but learning through project-based curriculum is really exciting. And I think the first step is actually upskilling the teachers, as you mentioned before. So I think in terms of adult learning, that's sort of our next lowest hanging fruit, if you will, because we have over 650 hours of lesson content, which is amazing in a space that, as you mentioned at the beginning, is still a new subject area. People haven't been teaching children how to code for that long. I mean, yes, Logo came out in the 70s and some kids learned how to code back then, which was great. (laughs) But since then, it wasn't until around 2013 when the adoption of Scratch started to become more popular that people started creating this content. But actually, a lot of the content that's out there just gets reused, the same content over and over again. So I'm really keen to get our amazing content proliferated throughout the world of education, whether that be passed down through government to upskill the teachers so that they can have access to the lessons, but also know how to teach it. And, you know, that can be a ripple effect from there outwards, if that makes sense.
1: And you anticipated my next question obviously as a keen listener of the podcast, but to <laughs> to ask about you know what the government can do in this area. And I spend a lot of my time with tech entrepreneurs and helping kind of navigate some of the ways that government works. And it's always such a culture clash in terms of tech entrepreneurs want to move quickly and they, they want things to be done by the following week. And when it comes to culture clashes, governments, you can't get much bigger than that when you Governments need a a green paper and then a white paper and then this reading (laughs) and that reading. It makes it all so complicated and so slow for people to be able to understand and navigate i would be really intrigued in your thoughts because you've done a lot around this in terms of you know you've also written a best-selling book in the area about how to code 2.0 what should governments be looking for to try and do in this area we've alluded to earlier there are always difficulties in terms of the curriculum of being able to put more things on because for everything you put on you got to take something off what do you think are the big opportunities for the government to do this? Because yeah, I believe the UK has been pretty much a world leader in this area. But what more can we do for the next decades ahead to keep ourselves at the forefront of this?
0: Yes, absolutely. And you did bring up that the UK has been a world leader. And I agree, I think the UK was the third country in the world to put computing as part of their national curriculum. So that's impressive. But that national curriculum for computing, which essentially aims to ensure that all pupils can understand and apply the fundamental principles and concepts of computer science, but it doesn't get very specific. And so I think the challenge that we have eight years down the road, which, you know, in two years time, if we could have a 10 year decade look back, on how that computing curriculum actually worked. I think the biggest challenge is that because it's vague, schools address it in wildly different ways. <laughs> you know, some schools will only allocate one hour once a week for half a term to their computing curriculum and say, okay, tick, that's done off the the list. So if we could actually relook at the computing curriculum, make it more specific, and also give training opportunities for the teachers to be able to understand how to teach this, they could then have those skills to incorporate it with their English or their math classes that they're already taking or their literacy classes. And so I would really call for a more specific computing curriculum and funding for further training for the teachers really
1: I think that's a great idea actually, a kind of ten year review and look ahead. And I'm sure there'll be plenty of think tanks that listen to the show that would be interested in doing that because it is going to be so fundamental. You know, there's lots of talk at the moment about building back better and all of this side of things, but you know, how it is actually done. The Queen's speech. Just recently as well, you know, putting reskilling right at the top of the agenda as one of the first items on there. we haven't seen that for a long time when it comes to skills. And so it's so pleasing to see it taking an important role at the heart of it, because it is going to be the key to levelling up as well, to trot another government phrase. That is going to be the best way you can do that. It's going to be by continual lifelong education as well. You've obviously worked in a number of different countries across the world and jurisdictions and so on. Are there any good ideas that you've seen from around the world that the UK could copy? Because that's always one of the easiest ways to get government legislation through, is if you can take data points from somewhere else where it's worked. Is there anything else you've seen that you think, that'd be a good idea? We should look to do that in the UK.
0: That's a good question. I think, interestingly, when I was first hiring developers, I had a lot of developers that came from Eastern Europe, because they said computing is just a normal thing that they do every day as part of their curriculum. And so I think that would be the main thing is that treating computing and computer science, not like a fringe subject. So again, making it one of those core subjects, not like, oh, we can slide it in like art, maybe get it up to physical education level. But actually, it needs to be right up there with math and English that kids are doing every single day as part of their day-to-day curriculum. And like I said, it doesn't have to be this or that. So I don't think those countries, I don't have specific ones, but <laughs> those countries have lost out on, you know, other parts of their curriculum, it's just that they're better at incorporating it into the day to day. So that would be, I guess, my suggestion that I'd be happy to help with further research as well. If anybody listening to the podcast is interested, because I just need to call back all my notes <laughs> and pull them to the limelight again.
1: Yeah, no, the accumulation of knowledge that you get is always difficult to sometimes explain succinctly. And I'm sure this is going to be a bigger and bigger area. So I'm sure there will be policymakers that are calling you after this (laughs) on that. Is there a book or anything really another podcast that has inspired you particularly over the last few years? You know, it can be business related or not business related. We'd love to hear that.
0: This one's sort of a book for kids, but I won't recommend my own book. But one of the books that I I read recently with my daughter is called Computational Fairy Tales. It's by Jeremy Kubica. It's a kid's book, but it's like computational thinking, but in a fairy tale theme. So you're not actually learning how to code in this book, but it's just bringing some of those concepts and these ways of thinking to light, but it's still a fun story. I think it's probably aimed at my daughter's 10, but probably like eight to 12 year olds. So if you have an eight to 12 year old, look it up.
1: That sounds a very good read and I'll put it on not quite for my yet but it'll be yeah, here exactly. before I know it. It will be before here before I sure. know it. Yes. So we'll, ha- we'll have to
0: get you to join as a teacher, Jimmy, so that you can oh. then-
1: your daughter <laughs> yeah I trust me I would uh, I'd be very intrigued in doing that I don't think I'd be very good um, <laughs> I don't think you can fit it into your schedule but
0: it would be it would
1: be fun <laughs> well look I would love to do this later in the year and as a reminder for people that you are like for a few days after this goes out you are still crowdfunding and I think it's an amazing company to go and have a look at I've really enjoyed spending time talking with you ahead of this but also researching everything that you're doing because it's so exciting and it's going to be so fundamental to everything we want to do as a country and as a society in terms of all those things that like I said just before building back better and leveling up it's so important and we're hoping to do some live shows later in the year we've kind of got some plans for that and it'd be great to have you as a part of that
0: yeah no that sounds great I would love to help absolutely and thank you so much for having me
1: brilliant thanks very much Elizabeth
0: okay thanks Jimmy
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. The mission of this podcast is to help inform people about the fantastic jobs that are being created and trying to present that information in an as accessible format as possible. I therefore really appreciate it if you could send this episode to someone who you think might find it useful and interesting. It doesn't have to be just for them. It could be that they work at a school, college or just interested in the future of our economy. If you could rate us on iTunes, that would be great. And of course, we are on social media platforms at Jimmy's Jobs. We are particularly trying to grow it on LinkedIn. Thanks to the team at Particle 6 for their editing skills and thanks to George Dick Cleland for the artwork.